All right. Well, I'm glad that you all could join us today. Uh, my name's Andrew Kelly. I'm at BoxLock. I serve as the Chief Commercial Officer. I'm super happy to have John Irvin, who I've gotten to know over recent months. He's with AllNet. I'm going to let him say a few words about himself because he's amazing, and I will not do it justice. Uh, so, John, tell us a little bit about yourself. Thanks, Andrew. I'm a 20-year healthcare executive focused on, on uh, operations and finance. Um, also, currently in a uh, doctoral program for business uh, at Jefferson University in Philadelphia. So I had a lot of experience in medical device logistics and also military operation as well. Outstanding. Yeah. So you'll forget more about healthcare than I will ever know. <laughs> Very true. <laughs> in terms of talking about uh, vaccine demand planning, I think this is going to be a, a lively conversation, right? And so um, uh, with that, I think we can just kind of get on, get right into it because I think we may have, we have about 20 minutes to talk to folks a little bit about our experiences uh, regarding logistics and healthcare and uh, the vaccine demand planning, like all those kinds of things. And so um, I'll share a little bit about the current state of play, and then we can kind of morph into uh, kind of what that means more from a clinical perspective, if that's okay with you, John. That's perfect. Thanks, Andrew. Okay, good deal. And so I think a lot of people in supply chain think about demand planning as uh, a process of just collecting all of the forecasts they can get their hands on so that they have a downstream view of what's going to need to be manufactured upstream, right? And so I think at its, it's, at its simplest, uh, that is what demand planning is. Of course, there are uh, many tools that have sprung up to try and make that easier. I think that for folks that are not in supply chain, when this process works less well, uh, we get things like we had last year where um, it was almost impossible to demand plan for uh, shortages that were uh, persisting around uh, toilet paper and then PPE and uh, then reagents at diagnostics labs. And then of course, uh, more recently here uh, with the vaccine itself, right? And so I think that uh, in terms of healthcare, I'd love to get your perspective, John, on how you see uh, demand planning and maybe share a little bit about your experience uh, as well to give folks some uh, some color, some perspective. Sure. And I think you make some good points. On um, the last 12 months in healthcare, we've run into a lot of constraints and bottlenecks as far as uh, supply um, chain. And we had to overcome a lot of those uh, bottlenecks. Uh, it, a lot of it was learning on the fly. We weren't prepared. Um, I think a lot of the American public and patients all kind of felt that, unfortunately, at the front end. And specifically related to the pandemic, um, a lot of lessons learned related to uh, PPE. And of course, now we're at the um, beginning stages of the vaccination rollout. So supply um, demand planning has been critical. Um, and even more critical now as we roll out the vaccinations to the American public. Yeah, uh, for sure, right? Because up until recently, we just had one vaccine candidate. Now there are at least two or three, which helps because uh, for there to be some demand planning, there needs to be the supply to offset it. <laughs> Otherwise, um, you know, demand planning without the supply is um, not a fantastic way uh, to kind of match the two up. And then practically what that means is, I think for communities, there are just fewer shots in arms, right? And so that's unfortunate for folks that have, you know, underlying conditions and these other comorbidity, fa comorbidity factors and things like that. Um, so 
one of the things that I think is uh, interesting to chat about a little bit is uh, kind of some of the metrics that are out there in the uh, the healthcare space. And so, as we talk to uh, healthcare providers and diagnostics labs and clinics, um, you know, one of the things I think most lay people can see as they're watching the news is the volume of vaccines that are out there and how many have been administered. And as I talk to uh, healthcare providers, one of the things that I hear persistently is they're they're all getting shorted on the vaccine, right? Meaning that uh, they may have had a certain amount that they were expecting, but for whatever reason, it either didn't come through or it's lesser or worst case scenario, uh, maybe even some of that vaccine is, uh, if it really requires ultra low temperatures, is uh, about to uh, be made uh, or rendered ir irrelevant because uh, there's not that dry ice or ultra low freezer or, or whatever's needed. So can you talk a little bit about maybe the community metrics in the provider space that you think are more relevant? Yes. Uh, and I think when you look at supply and demand, so whenever you're looking at, you know, um, evaluating that, obviously you want to look at what's the demand first. And I think in this situation, because of the current context of the pandemic, that has been very difficult to do. Uh, and we in healthcare work very closely with the Department of Health for each state, and it goes state by state. So um, in my previous role, um, I had um, about seven surgical centers in five or six different states. So each rollout was different according to each uh, Department of Health in the state, and that's all directed by the governor of the state. So I think what we've seen is, and you know, we're hearing it a lot in the media, social media and TV, is that we kind of we're trying to reverse engineer it and just you know push out you know um, a certain supply of vaccinations without knowing what the demand was and and a great example of that is uh, in a, on a local level let's say we have a surgery center let's say we have 50 staff members in that surgical center right we have basically went around and you have to remember with the current um vaccination process these are voluntary vaccinations so each member makes an individual informed decision whether they want to receive a vaccination or not. And we would literally go around and get a list of employees and ask for volunteers, anybody who wanted to be vaccinated. And then we would submit that up through usually a healthcare enterprise, healthcare medical center, and then they would allocate a certain amount of vac vaccine um, shots, um, if the vials. So it's kind of been reverse engineered. So it hasn't been, in my opinion, uh, a very successful process so far. I think we're learning, lessons learned. I know each Department of Health has learned a lot of lessons. The new administration that came in, they've really seen some opportunities for improvement. Uh, and it's not to say what we did in the past was wrong or incorrect. It's just, it's a fluid situation. And you know, one of the things we learned in the military is we can't predict, we can't control situations like this. So the most important thing is to adapt and modify what you're doing. That makes a lot of sense. Um, I'm just curious, and so one of the things that I have heard is that sometimes uh, clinics have to sort of make a choice. Do they vaccinate their frontline workers, but their mandate is to protect the community? And so there's a bit of a dilemma. Yes. Who should you vaccinate first? Because you're charged to protect the community, but you can't protect the community if you don't have frontline workers. And so... How does that conversation go? Um, if you can share a little bit about that. 
Absolutely. And I think you bring up a very good example. It's a it's an interesting ethical dilemma. Uh, when you look at it from a patient standpoint, you know, as a patient, you want to get the vaccination first because you're the patient. Right. Um, but if you look at it from a pandemic planning standpoint, um, you know, your frontline workers, you're they're the ones who are going to have the, the largest amount of exposure to the largest amount of people. Right. Patients, colleagues other healthcare providers. So, you know, it's been some difficult choices. And the interesting thing is in different states, it's been different processes, right? As far as who would get the uh, vaccination first. For the most part, most states followed, you know, frontline healthcare employees, uh, like in the emergency room, uh, urgent care centers, and then followed that with, for example, in the surgical center industry, we were kind of like the, the second tier and then you had also your first responders, so your police officers, your firemen, um, your your paramedics. So those individuals up to this point have been vaccinated first. The challenge with this process is that when we talk about demand, we weren't sure what the demand would be because remember it's a volunteer basis, and the supply constraints and bottlenecks have severely impacted the ability to make sure each one of these groups were given vaccination. So and that's what we're experiencing right now. So even though, and you'll see in several states where they rolled out, you know, they started at level one, two, three, four. Well, they may have went to level three, but the individuals in level one may not have all been vaccinated yet. So I think that's some of the lessons learned that we're seeing now. So nobody wants to put a hold or a pause, but you wanna make sure your priority groups are addressed first, and then you go down the list from there. Got it. Okay. That's helpful. Um, so you mentioned bottlenecks a little bit. So one of the things, particularly with the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine, is the need for ultra-low storage, right? Um, so temperatures that are in the you know negative 70, negative 80 degree range. And so Thermo Fisher and um, I think it's PHC Biomeds make some of these ultra-low freezers. Um, not everyone has them. I, I know that there are many, many of them out in the wild. But certainly there are places where... Um, and I know that those manufacturers are, are probably like working around the clock, right, to, to produce more of them. Um, practically speaking, how much of a challenge is that, right? So you've got the vaccine coming in, it needs to be put into one of these freezers and kind of logistically, I'm sure there's some kind of internal process that you've seen for making sure it either gets there or kind of gets there and is sort of like inventoried out um, to the, you know, the stages that you mentioned. So one, two, three, four, whatever that case may be, kind of state to state. Um, but could you talk a little bit about the uh, the restrictions, if there are any, uh, around um, your experiences with you know ultra low freezers and things like that in a healthcare setting? Yep. So we went through different um, kind of thought processes and ideation um, designs as far as you know the logistics of making sure that let's say for example um, surgical nurses and physicians and surgeons at a surgery center receive vaccination as soon as possible, right? according to their priority group. Now, the first thing we looked at was the logistics part. And you have to look at what equipment you have available. So the majority, the far majority of those healthcare facilities do not have cold storage. It just does not exist. In order to purchase the cold storage, you're talking about a pretty large expense to bring that in. And then the maintenance, the logistics, just getting it all set up. So there's a lot of time that's going to be expended doing all that. And then you have to look at the clinical capability. So a lot of folks don't understand that, you know, 
giving a vaccination that this is really the first type of this type of mRNA vaccination that's ever been given. Uh, from a clinical standpoint, you have to look at do we have the appropriate trained people and the appropriate resources in order to do that? Because the biggest thing when you're doing vaccinations in any location or facility is patient flows. What is the flows of getting an individual into a specific designated area? Um, having them, you know, sit in the chair or get interviewed, sign their consent for the vaccination, and then they have to wait. Remember, 15 minutes um, after receiving the vaccination, to make sure they don't have any um, side effects or symptoms. So that whole logistics coordination process is not easy, and you don't always have those experts in place from a logistical standpoint. So again, number one is, you know, what is the commitment to actually? give out the vaccination? Are you gonna give it to your employee or your patient first? Number two, what type of equipment do you have? What type of people and resources do you have? And then at that point, you go ahead and you move forward. And I've had some facilities where we um, were able to acquire vaccinations even kind of like the day before. You know, We didn't know what that demand was gonna be or even that supply, but we we learned that being partnered with a larger health system that the supply was there and then we quickly, literally within a 24 hour period, reached out to our team members. And again, it was a volunteer process and we requested volunteers to get vaccinated the very next day. So I think if you look at those three um, challenges, that's what we've really focused on at the, at the ground level. And I think, again, there's a lot of lessons learned there. And I think we're gonna continue to kind of, I think, improve the process over time. That makes a lot of sense. I uh, love all of that. Uh, that's great. You know, one of the things that you mentioned in there is uh, demand. I think that as, as all of us are hoping that we get uh, as close back to business as usual, right, in um, three months, six months, nine months, whatever that time frame is for, you know, different folks. Um, uh, one of the things that you know, I've been hearing about is the need to make sure that we're doing a lot of this uh, t testing uh, much more rapidly, right? And so, one of the things that I think may come out of this is maybe more testing at the point of care, maybe more rapid diagnostic tests, right? So I, the first thing that comes to mind for me is, uh, you know, airlines, right, who've suffered a great deal. And I think now the standard is something like a negative COVID test within 72 hours uh, of flight, if I recall correctly. Um, anything that you can share with us on the diagnostic side, uh, the testing side of things, right? Because uh, the more shots and arms that we can get from a vaccine perspective, the better off I think we'll all be, but uh, that's going to take time, right? And time probably measured in months and not in weeks. And so meanwhile, the next the next best thing with in addition to all the other CDC measures, right, is testing. And so uh, there is a tremendous amount of testing being done, like millions and millions of tests have been done to date, but um, you know, anything that you would share in terms of uh, testing and how that plays into uh, the demand planning or how you think about supply and demand or, or, or any of this? Yes. So I'll give you a great example, uh, again, at the local level in healthcare. So in the beginning of the pandemic, um, the governors, each department of health in the state, they had to make up um, specific recommendations as far as what patient populations would be required to be tested before they entered a healthcare facility. So my industry was a perfect example. Um, for example, in New Jersey, patients had to um, literally have a vaccination 
within 72 hours of their surgery. Now, the logistics of that was very difficult to maintain because, again, you had to have a destination to get a patient, um, not vaccinated, I'm sorry, get tested with the coronavirus test. I had to have a facility um, available, have the, the space available, the staff available, because you're working with your existing um, staffing, um, nurses and medical assistants and physicians. And that had to be within a 72 hour period. So what we found was that was a huge challenge for a lot of healthcare facilities, specifically in the surgical center industry. So over time, after lessons have been learned, each state department of health sometimes would extend that back to five days. So they would say, for example, okay, uh, Andrew, you're scheduled for surgery in five days. We want you to come in and have your COVID test um, five days out. And that gave us some more time, I think, to really logistically get things in order, um, focus on all your preoperative preparation that was required, and then make sure you were safe. Because at the end of the day, when a patient enters a healthcare facility, it's about safetyness of that patient and the safetyness of the staff members at the center. So, and now that you look at the different types of testing, you have various types of testing. Um, those tests have varied state to state as well. So for instance, in New Jersey, we might have different testing capabilities than we have in Pennsylvania. So each um, facility, each um, healthcare um, professionals in each state had to use the resources that were available to them in that specific state. And again, the, the goal was to make sure patients are safe when they come into our healthcare facility and they're having surgery. And of course, the team members are safe as well. Yeah, that, that's a great takeaway, particularly that, that point about uh, local um, local knowledge and kind of local differences, because I think that there are differences in the communities, there are differences in the healthcare um, providers that service those communities. I think the logistics providers like in that state or in that region also will have um, the ability to sort of adapt so that there's not necessarily a one size fits all. It would be great if there was one. I think it's more practically speaking, on a local level, how do logistics providers and healthcare workers and you know communities kind of you know work together, uh, given the kind of supply and demand challenges that we're all facing, right? I mean, I agree. It'd be amazing if we had ten different vaccine candidates and and already you know billions of vaccine uh, like awaiting to be put into arms. It's just not the reality right now. Um, no. you know, I think the key, Andrew, is when we look at this um, the last twelve months with the pandemic. The mm -hmm. example I always use is an iceberg. You know, we have been for the last 12 months looking at the tip of the iceberg. So we've been in reactionary phases, right? So over time, as we learn and we have these lessons learned, we're looking below the tip of the iceberg and we're looking at the narratives. We're looking at a lot of the things that are happening around us, right? And I think that we're learning specifically in the healthcare industry, public health, that we can't predict demand, right? We even can't predict supply. So we have to put in processes and systems in order to adapt on the fly in real time. And I think that's where, unfortunately, the pandemic has put us in a situation where it's gonna improve our ability to adapt and modify. Uh, and one of the terms we use a lot in my world is a VUCA world, right? That's a lot of complexity that we've seen. So it's important from a logistics standpoint that to have your, get your literally your plan A, but now we have to have plan B, C, and D because plan A is not always gonna happen. And it's just not possible. So then you go to plan B and then plan C. And that's the lessons we've learned in the healthcare industry.
Yeah, that's that's tremendous. And I think from a box lock perspective, you know, we're about adding additional information and access control, right? So if it's high value or high criticality, right? So on the high value side, um, you know, it's it's things like, you know, habit forming medications or PPE or reagents that not necessarily because there's high resale value, it's just the, the criticality of them and the, the limited supply because you know, PPE has been used in manufacturing for years and years. It's just that it's it's come into the popular vernacular last year as a result of the lack of it, right? Yes. You know, any parting thoughts you want to uh, mention a little bit more about what you do in your consulting business and share that with folks here? Sure. So um, I have a, a, a small business consulting company called AllNet. Uh, I focus on my verticals are um, healthcare consulting, strategic leadership, operations consulting. And I also work with medical device companies and cannabis and hemp companies. And I'd like to just finish with one thing, you know, about your company um, is, you know, as we look at logistics, we look at distribution of supplies, PPE, vaccinations. I think the one thing we always have to keep in mind, which is extremely important in this environment of high risk, is that chain of command. And that's where your product really comes in. And it really facilitates that chain of command. So me as a a healthcare leader, I want to know that at the end of the day, when all the um, specimens are taken for um, testing for the coronavirus, that those specimens are being picked up in a timely manner. I'm receiving a real-time notice through Bluetooth or an email. And then also you have the capability of notifying us that those specimens have reached the distribution center or the sorting center at a lab. And that's a critical, critical feature that's going to be embedded and integrated into these systems in the future. So I wanted to really give you a big shout out and kudos to really facilitating that process for us. You are too kind, sir. Uh, very much appreciate that. John, this has been fantastic. Just uh, always a pleasure to you know talk and catch up, but just you know sharing a little bit of this knowledge with folks that are in supply chain and logistics, they just may spend a little bit less time in and around healthcare and pharma in particular. Hopefully there are some nuggets of wisdom that they can take away, take back to their daily lives, use that so that as they're focusing on whether it's healthcare, pharma, cold chain, uh, pharmacy, you know, wherever they are uh, focused, uh, this will help them a little bit. So I really appreciate you taking the time today. You're welcome. Thanks, Andrew. I appreciate it. Absolutely. All right. Thanks for watching, everybody.